Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming David Marquet. David, who served as the captain of the USS Santa Fe, an attack nuclear submarine, took over that submarine when it was the lowest performing submarine in the entire U.S. Navy. He was able to turn that around by changing his own approach to leadership. And one of the best parts of David's story is the fact that more captains came out of his submarine than any other submarine. So it wasn't only the fact that David led, it was the fact that he produced a lot of outstanding leaders. And he told his story in his best-selling book, Turn the Ship Around, a true story of turning followers into leaders, and then a follow-on book on leadership, which is Leadership is Language, the hidden power of what you say and what you don't. So I really enjoyed this conversation with David and learned so much from him with respect to how our change of language and leadership can impact our people, bringing out the best in them and bringing out the best in our entire organization. So I'm sure you will enjoy this conversation too. I also enjoy hearing from you Keep your comments coming, mahanatmahantavakoli.com. There's also a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. Really enjoy getting those voice messages. Don't forget to follow the podcast on your favorite platform so you get the Tuesday conversations with magnificent changemakers from the greater Washington, D.C. DMV region, and then Thursday conversations with brilliant global thought leaders such as David Marquet. Now, here's my conversation with David. David Marquet, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Thanks for having me on your show, Mahan. David, your book, Turn the Ship Around, was recommended to me by a friend of mine a few years back, and I found it to be outstanding with respect to leadership. And then follow on to that, you wrote Leadership is Language, the hidden power of what you say and what you don't. So I can't wait to get to discussing some of your leadership experience and leadership thoughts. Before we get to that, we'd love to know whereabouts you grew up and how your upbringing impacted the kind of person you've become. I grew up in Massachusetts, outside of Boston. I grew up during the Cold War. I grew up in this, during the 70s. I went to high school in the 70s. And it was a grim time for anyone who was there, in my opinion, looking back on it. I think I was sort of an awkward kid, so high school was already tough. But in the country, which I love, we had inflation, we had the Iranian hostage crisis, we had uh, oil shock in 72, price of gas went up by four in one day. And of course, we were in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. We were doing air raid drills for nuclear attack. And it was kind of grim and dark, if you ask me. And I really wanted to do something about it. There was no sense of inevitability that we were going to win, in my mind. And we needed to make it happen. And the coolest thing that I ever read about was a submarine commander. 
And I read about all, I read all the stories in World War II about the submarine commanders. And of course, in the Cold War, they were playing a big role and we only heard you know, little secret dribs and drabs, but it was like, that is the coolest thing. And you know, I'm laughing because I'm thinking about Arnold Schwarzenegger and kindergarten <laughs> cop. And they're like, well, who, 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 like, what are you doing? He doesn't want to, he's the kindergarten, he says this is a nuclear submarine grid. Anyway, so that's what I wanted to do. And, and, and the reason for submarines was because I was introverted. I was on the math team. I was one of those geeky kids. I had a strange immunity to what other people thought about me. I just did my own thing. And I didn't like geeks, I didn't care. If you didn't like people in the chess team, I didn't care. If you didn't like the fact that I didn't come to all the parties and drink a lot, I didn't care. And I had this immunity to what other people thought. And it ended up, that ended up being very powerful later in my life. That is really powerful, whether you want to become an entrepreneur or you want to be a person that changes the way things are done. You have to do it your own way. And you mentioned you were a high school math team. You graduated top of Naval Academy. You knew both how to conform, but it sounds like there is a part of you that always found ways to go against the grain. I love the structure of the military. And I got in trouble because when I went to the Naval Academy and during plebe summer, which is supposed to, it's like boot camp. And they're really, they try and break you down and beat you up. And one of the first class, when these are the guys who were beating you up, would ask me near the end, so how was it for you, Marque? And for some reason, like, I was picturing we went sailing and we shot pistols and we did PT three times. A lot like summer camp. Anyway, that was the wrong thing to say. These guys prided themselves on how brutal they were. Anyway, so they beat up on me twice as much. But for me, I really benefited from the structure and the single-mindedness of I'm going to be a submarine or I'm going to be a submarine captain. And there's so much you can do in this world. But I just was a little bit had blinders on. That really helped me out. Now, when I went to the Naval Academy, they handed me a book and said, here's what leadership is. It says leadership is defined as directing the thoughts, plans, and action, actions of others. Directing the thoughts, plans, and actions of others. And I said, okay, what do I know? I'm 17 years old. And here's a dirty little secret. And I was good at it. I could see the answers and I could see what the team was doing wrong. And I could say, okay, stop, stop, stop. Don't do it this way. Do it that way. Don't stand here, not there. And no, 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 we're not turning left. We're turning right. And I got promoted based on that. Then there was the other side of me, which when people treated me like that, I was like, well, wait a minute. And I'd raise my hand. And the admiral would say, he'd say, okay, so here are your marching orders. Any questions? And I'd raise my hand and the guy next to me pull my hand down. And I was like, well, he said any questions. Like, no, that's a trick. <laughs> so that's where my immunity got me in trouble. But I sort of put that part of me in a box. I didn't give into it, but I was frustrated when I would say, you know, I can do a lot more. I can think a lot more. I can contribute a lot more in the ideas and in the values. And I would try and use the creativity in the zone where I could control things, which was within my own little team. But I was good at making decisions and telling people what to do. So the Navy 
promoted me and they said, oh, we're going to make you a submarine commander. And of course, that was a wonderful day in my life. And David, that's partly the way a lot of times people get promotions and succeed in all kinds of organizations, not just the armed forces and in the Navy, in that they are the smartest kid in class. You were one of the smartest in high school and high school math team. Top of their college graduating classes for you, the Naval Academy, many people, it can be uh, Harvard, MIT, my favorite, Georgetown. So they've always been the smartest in the school and in the class and have had the answers and therefore are rewarded with promotions because they've had the answers. You had the answers, you were the smartest, you wanted to become a captain, and you got the opportunity to become the captain of one of the newer submarines in the, the U.S. Navy, USS Santa Fe. What happened then? I wasn't supposed to be the captain of the Santa Fe. I was supposed to go to a different ship. And I went through a whole 12-month training pipeline for this other ship. The very last minute, because the Santa Fe was doing so badly, she had the worst morale, the worst performance. And the Navy, we would publish, the Navy publishes a message every month. It's very public and it has this listing. The Santa Fe is an attack submarine, all 50 attack submarines. And it would list them from the best retention. In other words, the best job of keeping people in the Navy to the worst. And the Santa Fe would be at the bottom. And for months, the Santa Fe was at the bottom of the list. Anyway, he resigned, which was very unheard of. It Basically, you got to get clawed out of that job as submarine commander. You got to get fired. And I give him a lot of credit for that. And, and so anyway, so now the Navy had a ship with no captain. And I just graduated from school. I said, you're going to go to the Santa Fe. So I had like two weeks and I went and talked to my boss, my boss's boss and the advisors, people on the staff about the submarine. And they said, and I kept hearing the same thing. It's just a lack of leadership. What do you mean exactly? Well, you know, it's a lack of leadership. And I would say, yeah, sure, I know, but I really didn't know. When I got down on the ship, it wasn't a lack of leadership. It was the wrong kind of leadership. It was a leadership where people were just told what to do. And that was on other submarines. And that was all throughout the Navy. The problem is if the person at the top's head's not in the game and they don't make the right decision, it's a highly personality dependent organization. If the quote CEO or the leader is good, everything does good. If the quote leader or CEO is not good, when I say good, I'm talking about making tactical decisions. Invest in A or B, turn left or right. And everything's bad. And it's because we have this do what you're told culture. And we divide the world into two, people who make decisions and do thinking for a living and get to tell other people what to do. And they do the doing for a living. And I think this idea contributes to this overpay of CEOs. We think they're so valuable because we have a structure which puts too much power. Or I think the apparent, there's a, there's appearance to it, but there's also a reality, which is too much power in the decision-making. Because the thing, the organization will follow a leader, good or bad. We see it over and over again. Wells Fargo, Volkswagen, Boeing, whatever you want. And on the Santa Fe, when I got there, I'm walking around in my head, I'm literally feeling like Alice in Wonderland. Because I don't, I think the equipment looks different. Everyone's looking at their shoes as I walk around. 
I take over, we go to see, and we're running exercise, and I give a bad order. I give an order which can't be done. It wasn't an order that could be done that was bad. It was just an order that could simply not be done with the equipment that we had. I suggested it to the officer. I didn't actually give a bad order. I suggested it to the officer who gave the order. And then when the sailor kind of shrugged his shoulders, it all came out and turned to the officer and said, well, hey, what's going on? Like, did you know? He said, yeah, I did. It's like, what? And it hit me that all these things that we do, all the listeners are already thinking, well, you know, we tell people to speak up. We say it's your obligation to say if it doesn't make sense. We invite people to disagree with me. That's not enough. That's the tip of the iceberg. That might get 10% of people to speak up in an organization where people are supposed to do what they're told, which is, oh, by the way, every organization on the planet. The answer isn't to give orders and then harangue people to tell you if they think they're wrong. The answer is to figure out how not to give orders and have the orders emanate from the team. And this required me to do everything the opposite that I'd ever learned about leadership. But I was always about make decision, give an order, be bold, lean in, make it happen, put the team under pressure, be a pace setter, like go, 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 we're burning daylight. And all that makes it hard. Every one of those things makes it harder for people to think and speak up, makes it easier for them to just do what they're told. And secretly, that's what we want. Even when we say we don't, we get frustrated. Oh, why are you asking me all these things? Come on, we're, we're, we're wasting time. Let's go, go, go. And the reason is because we've inherited the industrial age playbook. I say to my teams, hey, how about I never give an order? And they're like looking at their shoes. I mean, we all know we're basically effed here because they got this guy who was trained for a different ship and they're the worst, are already the worst ship. And everyone is happy to tell them how bad they are. And they're like, sure, it can't get worse. I guess we can kill ourselves, but, you know, die in an accident. But let's try it. So here's the deal. You got to talk to me in a way that doesn't make me give you an order. Now, the way we were trained and conditioned, programmed to speak was if you're my boss and you're the submarine commander and I want to submerge the submarine, the book says the captain authorized submerging submarine. So I come to you and say, hey, Mahan, I request permission to submerge the submarine. And then you would say, submerge the submarine. And you would give the order. And then I'd say, submerge the submarine, aye, aye, sir. And I'd go about doing it. Even when things were my idea, I was still making you order it. And so we replaced that with the word intent. It's where we'd say, hey, just come to me and say, here's what you intend to do. Now, the first time someone comes to you and says, I intend to submerge your submarine, you have a lot of questions like, hey, are the hatches shut? Are all the people below? And if we check the box, like there's a whole checklist for it. They quickly learned if they didn't want to be inundated with all these questions, that they would just preempt me with it. They say, Captain, here's the situation. All the hats are shut. People are below, blah, blah, blah. Check the bottom depth. I intend to submerge the ship. And I would say, very well. And I never had to order it because I just acknowledged it. And even if I didn't say anything, they could do it. So for example, in a business, if we say, we write an email, say next Wednesday, we intend to meet with a client ABC. We intend to offer them the following package. We intend to, even though normally it says I can offer a head of sales, a 10% discount, I'm going to give them a 20% because it's a new client, new space, new geographies opening up. I'm doing some thinking. That's what you want. And then the boss never reads the email. It doesn't matter. You do it. You own it. No one's waiting. 
The organizations that we have are designed, they're deliberately designed to stop things from happening. They're designed to stop change and decisions. If you want to run a business, why is a business like Tesla or some entrepreneurial business so much faster at doing things, say GM? They're not necessarily smarter. They don't need to ask permission. They don't need to convince everybody. You need to get everyone to say yes. Everyone is never going to say yes. There's too many people invested in combustion engines. They're never going to all sign up for it. We think that's a bad model for this. We think this business should not make business decisions based on consent. As you mentioned, what we call consent, which is someone has an idea. All I need is for no one to be a blocker. I don't need everyone to be an approver. It sounds minor, but it's a huge shift. The psychological ownership squarely on the person who's making these decisions. Every day when we talk to a new CEO, every single one of them says the same. I wish there was more ownership. I wish there was a bias for action. I wish there was more bolder decision-making. I wish there were more cross-functional team interactions, less stovepiping. It's just everyone's got this, wants the same thing. So I sit in on a meeting. The meetings are not run in ways which encourage any of those things. The meetings are run to solve the problem. The meetings aren't run to enhance ownership. The primary objective Every time you interact with your people is to build ownership, build thinking, because your journey as a leader is a journey toward irrelevance. You're going to be irrelevant one day. It might be soon. It might be midterm. Eventually, we're all going to die. So eventually, we're all going to be irrelevant. You might as well start your journey now because you don't want it to be a cliff when you get there. And there are a lot of baby boomers. They've done everything right. They were bold, they made decisions, their fingertips were everywhere in the business. They built a nice company, it's got 200 people, and no one wants to buy it because they're the center of the spider web. David, it takes a lot of humility to be able to do that. And it's a very powerful point you make, both with respect to when you were captain of the ship and what organizations need to do. Transitioning from either permission-based and or consensus-based decision-making to intent-based organizations. To be able to do that, though, it takes a couple of things, and I wonder how you were able to do it. One is it requires a shift and change in mindset of the leader herself or himself to let go of that need for control. And the second part of it is there is a need for a shift in the mindset of the people that person is leading. As you were trying to do this, most especially in the Navy, where people have been used to being told what to do, even more so than many organizations, how were you able to bring them along? How were you able to shift your own mindset? And how were you able to shift the mindset of the team to become more intent-based? I'll start with me because 90% of the problem was me and 99% of what I know was all about me. I think there were four things that allowed me to do this when previous people hadn't done it. One was this, going back to this immunity to what other people cared. The phrase I used was, I cared, I care, don't care. I cared deeply and passionately about the people who've been trusted to me and about our mission. I don't care about how I present or what my boss thinks, it wasn't charade. What anyone else thought about us, and my guys were more worried for me because we do things. For example, there was an old rule that 
when you were in shallow water, you needed a sailor standing at the fathometer, calling out the depths, how far about you were by the bottom every 30 seconds or something. That was written for the submarine when they were originally designed. The fathometer was in the back corner of the control room and the people driving the ship were sitting in the front. But on the Santa Fe, we had a mod where we, the depth below the bottom was displayed in front. There, this was unnecessary, but still in the rules. So I said, well, we're not doing that because it's one extra person who could be sleeping, studying, doing something else. And it's adding noise to the control room. I asked him, why are we doing that? It's in a rule book. He said, well, we're not doing it. And then they were worried for me. So if we run aground, they're going to be an investigation. We're going to find we broke with the rules. You're going to get fired. I said, A, if we run aground, I'm probably going to get fired anyway. B, does this help prevent us from running aground? No. Okay. And C, don't run aground. Like, let's just not run aground. So number one, there's the immunity. Number two was I had a, I had a probably naive and misplaced belief that I could control our future. I could control how the ship was going to operate. So it was worth investing time and changing how we interacted. I also had an irreverence, and this maybe spills into the care, don't care part, but I had a reverence for what came before. And people say, well, we've always done it that way. And I'm like, I don't care. It's stupid. I get that over and over and over again. I saw things that were just made no sense. For example, every day you'd get a very important piece of paper called the fuel, oil, and water report which would list how many gallons of everything you had on the submarine, which we had different. We had multiple kinds of oils, so some oil used in some different oils. Each of these oils, you had to have an inventory and how much diesel fuel you had in case your reactor shut down and how much fresh water. And it was a piece of paper which just had all these numbers on it, just numbers. And every day, numbers, every day. And I look at it and say, are these, is this good? Is it bad? Are we headed for oblivion here? So I said, Scratch that. That thing is useless. What I want to chart or days till empty. Like we have 2000 gallons and we're leaking half a gallon of blue boil every day. That's not a problem. I don't care. If we're leaking 10 gallons. That's a big problem for us and the environment. To make it a chart, we would change things like that. And, and like this, every ship, every day, 300 ships in the Navy, 300 commanding officers. 365 days a year, 10,000 times, you know, since World War II, 5 million pieces of times this piece of paper has gone and sat in front of some commanding officer. No one ever changed it. David, that is the truth of how a lot of organizations operate. So one of the things I want to underline is my primary experience both internationally was and in the greater Washington, D.C. region is working with organizations. And it's incredible how some of those same patterns exist. So it's pretty easy to be dismissive of how things operate, whether it's in the armed forces, in this instance, in the Navy, as you were a captain of a submarine. But it's the way Things operate in organizations on an ongoing basis where no one has asked, why are we still doing this? Is this meeting a purpose or not? It's easy for me to say this and people may or may not believe it, but two things. First of all, on the worst day, the nuclear-powered submarine Santa Fe ran better than most of the companies we interact with. I mean, you want it to be like that. We're, we're running a nuclear 
powered submarine around the ocean. So when I say I was kind of worst performing crew, the scale is very high in terms of performance and performance expectations. This is not unique to the experience of the Navy. And I like the fact that you mentioned this is a high functioning team. And in most instances, way higher functioning than most of the organizations that I see operating. Yeah. And including my own company right now, we're, we're not nearly as good. We don't need to be. What we're doing is, is, is critical. What I've learned in the last 10 years, traveling the world, doing hundreds of events with thousands of companies is it's more the same than people think. And whether you're a water bottling company in France or a appliance manufacturer in Shenzhen or a green energy company in the UK or a jet engine manufacturer in the US, like the common, the common things, it's so the same. Well, I would love to briefly touch on a couple of elements that you highlight in your book, Leadership is Language, David. You talk about the importance of language and use the example of Alfaro, which is a container ship that sank back in 2015, which I find to be very relevant, most especially right now, where organizations are facing even greater levels of uncertainty. When you are in calm waters, it's easier to operate with the old mindset that worked well in the industrial age. In uncertain times, it's not. What are the lessons that you got out from studying the Alfaro and the experienced leaders need to take as they use language in leading their organizations? Were there structural markers in the language that teams use that separated teams who are making bad decisions from teams that were making, who were able to adapt to situations, agile, resilient, adaptive teams. So we looked at a whole bunch of transcripts, as many transcripts as we could find, and we were looking for patterns. Now, a lot of these ended up being black box transcripts from airplanes and ships, or maybe a transcript from a court testimony, but it's still not strictly a transcript. This is what people remember that they said, which is the point of what they said. We were really interested in what people actually say. And so the Alfaro left for Jacksonville, Florida, was heading south to Puerto Rico. They knew there was a hurricane. Hurricane Joaquin was coming in. It ended up being the most powerful hurricane to hit the Bahamas in 100 years. They knew it. They knew it was coming. It was getting closer. Captain got a text from someone on a sister ship the day before they left. They had radio. They had all the modern things. Not knowing about the hurricane was not the problem. And then you hear these people on the bridge discussing whether they should turn because of the bathymetry and the shoal waters through the Bahamas. Once you decide to take the direct route, which is on the seaward side of the Bahamas, you really only have one shot to turn. But they had that shot. They sank after that. They missed the turn or they chose not to take the turn. The sort of day and a half in advance decision that got sunk. It was the just a couple of hours. They missed the turn at midnight, or they had a chance to turn at midnight, and at six they sank. You read the word of the captain and the officers and the crewmen as they're making these decisions. It's gut-wrenching because you know that they're not going to make the right decisions. They're going to die. We were looking for patterns. One pattern that really stood out clearly is that the number of words people say, the proportion of words that people say when in a group, 
matches their relative salary. And on the El Faro, this was exactly the case. Every single time, there were no exceptions to this rule. Every time the captain, an officer, and a crewman were together on the bridge for some period of time, the captain always said the most of our words. The officer always said the next most of the crewman, the least by a long margin. Not only did it match their salary by the sequence, but it matched it by the approximate amount of money they make because the officer makes money, doesn't make as much as the captain, but a lot closer to the captain, the seamen make way less. That is exactly how the word count went. That is a fragile structure, is this indication that the team is on perilous footing when it comes to making decisions. It ends up happening in a lot of organizations, David. I coach senior teams. And in most instances, the same thing happens in those organizations with the senior teams. You can see if someone didn't know who is the CEO, who is the CFO moving on the line, you could plot it based on the amount of time they spend speaking. There is a lot of leadership insights and turn the ship around. I love the perspectives. Most specifically, it's really hard to become an intent-based organization rather than permission. Same thing in leadership is language. It is very powerful. And from my perspective, one of the things that speaks so highly about your content, David, is the fact that your crew produced more ship captains after you left. You say your achievement scorecard runs while you're at an organization. Your leadership scorecard starts when you leave. So when you look at the Jack Welches of the world who were on cover of magazine after magazine and their organizations collapsed after they left, that's the sign of weak leadership while yours is sign of great leadership, which is why I really have appreciated your content and your book. Where can the audience find out more about your content what you continually share in addition to your books that they can find online retailers and their corner bookstores. First of all, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm L. Uh, David Marquet. Books are Turn the Ship Around and Leadership as Language. Our program is called Intent-Based Leadership. So we have a LinkedIn page and a website, IBLI, Intent-Based Leadership International. But I think the probably the funnest and most useful is our YouTube channel called Leadership Nudges. And these are just little things you can do to remind yourself about being a better leader. We try and make them very practical because we think leadership is a practice. It's not a theory. But when we try and teach it like a theory, it's wrong. It's more like learning a language. You just got to take it and practice and practice and practice. The YouTube channel's Leadership Nudges, I keep them to a minute to 90 seconds. There are a few that are longer, but I really try and keep it short. Just a quick story and a lesson. So try this, don't say this, say that kind of thing. If you want to stop doing something. You share a lot of great thoughts and perspectives, whether for individual development and most specifically for leaders. And as I mentioned, one of the things I've appreciated about your content is that you continue with humility to show what leadership is all about rather than just talking about it. I really appreciate everything that you've done to advance the conversation on leadership, not just with respect to what we say, although that language is important, but with respect to how we lead. Thank you so much, David Marquet. Thanks. Cheers, all listeners. 
You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.